0: Welcome to this ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast special edition. This podcast is split into two episodes. Here's episode one. Welcome to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast.
1: Hello. And welcome to this ICAW In Focus podcast, in which we look forward to 2022 and pick out those issues which we think will be the big ones for society, organisations, and importantly, our members. My name's Michael Itzer. I'm the Chief Executive at the ICAW and the Chairman of Chartered Accountants Worldwide. And I'm joined today by my ICAW colleagues and subject matter experts. First of all, Philippa Kelly, who's the ICAW Director of Financial Services. Richard Spencer, Director of Sustainability. Alison Ring, Director of Public Sector and Taxation. And David Leifertilli, Technical Manager, Tech and the Profession. Now, before I bring my colleagues into the conversation, let me just take a few minutes to consider the challenges that we're all facing in 2022. The global economy is undergoing significant change as we begin a transition away from a dependency on oil, coal, and gas. Now, depending on where you're listening to this podcast from, you may actually say that this transition started some years ago. But I think we have to reflect on the fact that different countries in the world are at different stages in this journey. And as this journey gets underway, new dependencies are beginning to emerge. This is probably most apparent in the materials that are necessary for a clean energy future. Many of the countries that are actually rich in the scarce metals that underpin the technologies of the future are now coming into sharp focus. And it does mean that the global superpowers like China and India are going to play an increasingly important role, but there are also many smaller nations that are not yet at the front of our minds. And when we begin to source more and more of these materials, it's going to come with some difficult political Challenges. I mean, for example, are we willing to have our materials for renewables mined, perhaps in circumstances where there might be questions about child and forced labour? And what is going to be the responsibility as organisations sourcing these products and consuming rich nations to make sure that the prosperity exists in these places to make sure that that doesn't happen? Coal is clearly on its way out. At COP26 in Glasgow, history was made with a commitment to end burning coal and to phase out subsidies for fossil fuels. It also resulted in a commitment to support the new ratcheting mechanism to accelerate the reduction in emissions. However, we've got to be cautious here, because some of the poorest rely most on hydrocarbons, and if there's going to be a fair and equitable transition... Those of us that are in the more developed and richer nations have got to ensure that the death of coal doesn't spell disaster for billions. So with those messages from COP26 still ringing in our ears, how are we going to turn all these promises into action? Most governments are thinking about rebuilding a future out of COVID that uses words like green and fair. For that to happen, we're going to need skills and government policy that underpins things like levelling up and investment. We have to learn the lessons of the 1970s when we didn't plan for a new economy. And now we must make sure that we have the skills needed for a decarbonised world. Inflation is very much back on the agenda and companies across the globe are having to understand what new inflation highs mean for their businesses and for those of their suppliers, partners and customers. One of the things driving this inflationary pressure is supply chains and supply chains will have to become more agile data-led and transparent to accommodate those issues like modern slavery climate and other risks this doesn't mean that just in time has quite gone away but it does mean that we're going to have to be cost efficient and that procurement and supply chain planning will no longer revol- revolve entirely around cost let me now invite some comments from the team so Alison. What are your thoughts on the global economy?
0: Well, I think I'm going to take an optimistic view, and our hope is then that the recovery from the pandemic will be as strong as possible, although we won't know for some time the extent of the permanent scarring to global prosperity from the pandemic. The bottlenecks seen in the last half of 2021, they should ease as supply rises to meet demand. But there could still be problems in some sectors, especially if further waves of the virus adversely affect manufacturing output. Then I think that um, interest rates are likely to rise further as the central banks respond to inflationary pressures. I think the rates rises are likely to be cautious and gradual given the potential risks to asset values. And there's the expectation that inflation should come down in the second half of the year once we pass the anniversary of the recent bursts of inflation. However, central banks are likely to remain worried until they see that happening. And then if you look at developed countries, including the UK and the US... They're upping their investment in infrastructure, and that should be positive in terms of economic stimulus. And that's in distinct contrast to the austerity policies we saw following the 2008 financial crisis. And policymakers are hoping not to repeat the low growth of the last decade. But despite all of that, I think public finances will remain stretched. The extra debt taking on during the pandemic increases the exposure governments have to interest rates. And the ageing societies across the whole of the world continue to put pressure on public health and welfare systems. And that's squeezing the amounts available for other public services. And also we're seeing then um, some countries put up taxes in response, including here in the UK. And of course, we still don't know how much longer the pandemic will continue to persist and affect us all. Vaccination levels remain low in much of the developing world. And new variants are always possible, as we have seen. There are some signs, though, that the global economy is adapting and then the hope will be that the shake-up in ways of working will help unlock the productivity puzzle that's been hampering economic growth in recent years.
1: So, Richard, can I bring you in here? I mentioned the green and fair recovery. What does that mean to you?
2: Well, the whole way the the environment is and the economy are being talked about has, has changed completely. So if we look at COP, Uh, Discussions in the past focused very much technically on the financial issues that were hampering progress in the climate negotiations, particularly support for poorer nations. We've heard uh, a lot about the magic $100 billion a year from OECD countries to poorer nations. But what we saw at the COP was a much broader discussion going on between world leaders and, and finance ministers at COP. We've, we've usually seen COP populated with environment ministers, but for the first time we, we saw a, a US Treasury secretary there. And they were looking at ways, and the discussion was about looking at ways to mobilise not $100 billion, but trillions of dollars of private sector money. So we're having, we're having a very different conversation That feeds into the or plays into the economic rebuild and into trade. Previous discussions were very much ones that opposed the idea of climate action with economic prosperity, and those those two are now quite quite firmly coupled together. And and there was an interesting kind of good perfect storm, if you can have such a thing, this year because Italy chaired the G20, the UK chaired the G7, and the two countries chaired COP. This brought together those economic and political forums with the COP and we hope that in a way that that's really quite a turning point and that's going to stick. This year and next year are going to be very important in seeing if how much of that achievement is sustained how much that link between the political forums and and the COP can be sustained. This year we've got COP27 of course at Sharm el-Sheikh and then next year the UAE so it'll be interesting to see how that gets sustained.
0: You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast.
1: Sir Richard, one of the things that, uh, that strikes me is that we had quite a momentum that gathered in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow. How do you think that the continuing presidency of the UK is going to be important in driving that forward and maintaining it between Glasgow and Sharm El Sheikh?
2: very important. I mean, the UK the UK has shown enormous leadership in doing that, and I think we kind of we left with the Glasgow Pact probably delivering less than we'd all hoped for, but more than we'd expected. and And we do have we do have reasons for being cheerful to come out of that. As I said, we have we had finance ministers, we had business, we had finance there, as well as the NGOs. And I think we also had the deals on oil and gas and coal, which the UK Really put at the center of the death of coal was was uh, was key to key a key signature piece for for well it 's perhaps not dead it's it 's certainly on a, on a respirator but I think the important thing here is to see it in the con- wider context of the sustainable development goals in that the transition that we 're talking about has got to be a fair one so we see it in the in not only in the context of loss of biodiversity. And this year, we're going to see the the COP15, which is about biological diversity in April, but also massively increasing inequalities. You know, we think COVID pushed over 100 million people back into poverty. That's the first time in almost a decade, the trend has gone backwards. And the danger is in, in the transition that we're talking about, that we push more people into poverty. Transitions are expensive. If we think just about the deal on coal, it does feel very much like the wealthy nations have said we're not going to finance coal in Africa. But we are going to finance coal at home. Now, what that doesn't take into account are probably the billions of people who depend on coal for energy suddenly not having that financed. So then there's a really important part here about the OECD nations making sure this transition is fair. And even, even if we think more locally our energy prices are going up here in the uk we've got to make sure that that doesn't exclude a whole swathe of the population by creating fuel poverty and the the wider agenda that if you look at climate in the context of the sdgs we're not just thinking about access to energy we're thinking about gender equality we're thinking about decent work we're thinking about good cities we're thinking about modern slavery all of these are interconnected Whilst it's important to have these conversations that focus on climate, that focus on biodiversity, it's important that, to recognise, and this is what the SDGs shows, is the interconnectivity of these. We will not have prosperity if our societies don't work and if nature doesn't work. So I think that's a really important piece for us. And then just to, just to finish on that, the longer we kick this down the road... OK, the longer we kick this down the road, the bumpier the ride gets. Now, who, who listening to this, who here hasn't seen on television, at least, hasn't actually experienced firsthand the more violent storms, the fires, the pestilence of, of, of mice, the drought? Now, what we do know is that if we think that we had in the, in the north a rubbish summer and in the south a rubbish a winter, this is the best we're going to have for quite a long time. So it's going to get worse, and so we're not just as individuals thinking about this, but as our businesses. What's your plan? How are you going to? How are you going to cope with that flood next year? How are you going to cope with that? The the week at thirty degrees and your air conditioning breaking down, the transport system breaking down. So we've got to really think about resilience as well.
1: Yeah, business continuity takes on a completely <laughs> different uh, context, doesn't it? Alison, you wanted to come in.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to add the point there. I mean, obviously Richard said about the the greater the cost really the longer we keep kicking it down the road. But I really do think we need to see a step change in how government itself actually comes in to help with the delivery of the SDGs. And that's at a central and local level. And that, again, is across the world. Because what we've seen is um, government relying on business and individuals to actually step up their activity in, in terms of delivery of SDGs. But we want, I think we need to see them leading the way in actually in terms of their own activity as well.
1: Before we leave COP26, I just wanted to say a quick word, though, about the the next presidency of the G20, because that's going to be uh, assumed by Indonesia. And for those of you who are interested, the ICAW had a really interesting webinar in November with the Indonesian Finance Minister, who outlined what I thought was a very impressive plan to continue the momentum going forward. So I think we all need to recognise that uh, many countries are committed to this agenda and and we're going to see different politicians carrying the torch now forward. Really was very impressive. I can commend it to you. Let's turn to a different topic then. So inflation, that's a subject that we haven't talked about for quite a few years, but it now appears to be rearing its head again. So what are your thoughts on this, Alison?
0: So as mentioned earlier, really, I think higher inflation and will in theory be temporary um, as energy production and supply chains respond to the recovery in demand. But I do think a risk of an inflationary spiral can't be ruled out. But um, higher inflation (laughs) does actually help reduce the debt to GDP ratios because it inflates away the public debt, although that's less so in the UK because we have um, the index linked gilts.
1: Philippa, is this a a time for you to come in? So, So what are your thoughts on inflation?
0: Like you say, it's something that we
3: perhaps haven't discussed for a very long time, and now it's appearing in every conversation that I'm having at the minute, certainly. So a recent description I heard about the inflation we're seeing at the minute is um, the ketchup in the bottle problem. So you want a bit of ketchup, but then actually once it starts to come out, you end up with a lot more than than you wanted or you bargained for. So whilst we do need some inflation to get out of such a low-rate environment that's persisted for a long time... Actually, the, the amount and the unpredictability that we're seeing at the minute isn't necessarily something that, that businesses or individuals are finding straightforward to, to get a handle on, given we haven't seen inflation for such a long time. And I think to, to go back to the point we were talking about in terms of fairness, when we think about those big macroeconomic variables and how we see them changing, inflation, interest rates, house prices... House prices is is certainly one that is bumpy in in the UK, in other economies as well. But what we are seeing is the possibility for more innovation in the mortgage market and new thoughts about how we increase affordability of housing over the next few years. So something that the the government is keen on, but also looking at things like 40-year mortgages. So if we are going into a a more unpredictable economic environment, is that something that um, there is going to be demand for in the market? Because we've actually seen um, a 40-year fixed mortgage come out recently. And when we're thinking about the, the impact of inflation, people also need to take a closer look at their personal finances so the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK did some research recently where they looked at the the volume of people holding their savings in cash and there's going to be a real push to get more people to invest rather than save in cash. And one of the reasons for that is because of the risks that inflation causes to the, the value of that when we're coming to a time where people need more money for, for le- to provide for themselves in, in later life or simply to, to deal with unexpected events that, that life throws at you, as we've seen over the past year or so.
1: And Philippa, we um, we shouldn't forget that perhaps not everyone on this call is quite as close to the financial services sector as, as you are. But certainly in the banking and insurance sectors, they'll probably be welcoming higher inflation. And... Um, time being called on a low interest environment because for the past decade they've actually had a pretty difficult time haven't they?
3: Yeah it's been been quite challenging and not only in terms of the the income for those types of businesses but actually what you can do in terms of products how how satisfied your your customers are and the flexibility that you have has all been very constrained.
1: Well, let's see, if, uh, let's see if there's a new dawn coming. So can we turn now to perhaps jobs, skills and levelling up? So, Alison, your thoughts on this area?
0: Well, I think the good news is that um, really across the world, there were various support schemes that uh, kept unemployment down during the pandemic. But we're still seeing significant shifts in the workforce between sectors. And I think that's likely to continue this year. And many employers are struggling to find the skilled workers they need. And although the government has increased the budget for further education in recent years, there's still a big skills deficit that needs to be addressed. We've got a growing number of school leavers coming over the coming decade, and that should help meet some of the demand from employers. Although, of course, that's got resource implications for colleges, universities, and particularly apprenticeships, where the budgets are tight. I mean, my thought there is, you know, will we have people with the right skill set because I think we often talk about these jobs that they are going to go in, into don't actually exist at the moment. So are we actually providing uh, our students, uh, our younger people with the right skill set to do the jobs that are going to be coming along? And then going back to the levelling up agenda, that's uh, I mean obviously a very hot topic uh, across the world, really. And it's starting to become a bit clearer. Obviously, last year we had the big infrastructure investments announced in the major transport across the UK, that is. But there's many areas still to address because there's lots of regional disparities in economic activity. So there's greater clarity needed on how local government particularly can play their part as well as what the government can do to invest in skills and training. I think really overall there's going to be, even if we have a levelling up vision, how is that going to be delivered and who's going to deliver it? Because have we actually got the resources, not necessarily the money, but actually have we got the people to actually get uh, the shovels in the ground to uh, deliver this levelling up agenda?
1: So Philippa, from your perspective, what's your view on the labour market?
3: So I think, like Alison says, it's not just the way we work that has changed throughout the pandemic. It's actually the shape of that working population. And they're slightly different challenges on both sides. So I think we're still continuing to see the evolution of what that labour market looks like during and post-pandemic. And at the minute, there's a lot of different stories still unfolding. So if we look at the trends around older workers leaving the workforce and then potentially re-entering, but re-entering in, in lower amounts than perhaps were initially assumed. The impact on women and those with caring responsibilities in particular and immigration as well. So I think it will will still be a while till we, we figure out what our labour market looks like going forward. So those policies and the support to get those people who are able to work and who want to work back into work are going to be really important. And we've seen things like the the Kickstart scheme, which is full of potential, but the effectiveness has been questioned. We know that there are parents and carers who are missing out on things like tax-free childcare. So I think as well as looking at perhaps new incentives and policies we also need to make sure that the incentives and systems that we do have are working before we bring in new ones and I think many businesses are still thinking about their approach to hybrid working or remote working so we know it's got some benefits for example around inclusion but it's also got disadvantages and thinking about what that longer term balance will look like and the impact that that has on on cities and town centres so whilst it it feels like we should be able to reflect in in the time that's passed since the start of the pandemic and seeing this change i think we're still very much in that evolution and seeing where we will end up and what what the long-term implications of that will be
1: yes i don't think we're going to uh, know how that story's going to end for perhaps a little while just yet
0: we hope you enjoyed this episode If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.